Today we're in Matthew chapter 5. Pastor Brent last week began uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and uh, our pace through Matthew is going to slow down rapidly uh, at this point. <laughs> We've been making a pretty good clip in the first few chapters, um, but as we get into the Sermon on the Mount, we'll, we'll uh, slow down greatly. Last week, Pastor Brent asked a question, is, is Jesus giving instructions or is he giving an announcement? And depending on your, your theological leaning, you might have answered one way or the other, but, uh, but Jesus really is giving an announcement. And, and today, uh, as we look at verses 13 to 16, we're going to see just the continuance of uh, this proclamation. And uh, it says this in Matthew 5, starting in verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So Jesus making again an announcement here, a proclamation. He starts out by saying, you are the salt of the earth. He doesn't start out by saying, go be the salt of the earth. There's a difference, right? Slight difference in wording, significant difference in meaning. He doesn't say here, go work hard, go try harder to be better at being the salt of the earth. He says, you are the salt of the earth. He simply just makes a proclamation. He's not telling you to be He's telling you that you are, that your default position as a kingdom person, as a Christian, as one who has submitted their life to Christ, your default position or one of your default positions is that you are the salt of the earth. Now, there's all kinds of lines and correlations that we could draw between you know, salt being a preservative and salt being a seasoning, and, and many pastors have done that uh, over the years, and it wouldn't be wrong to do that. I'm not saying that at all. Let me say this. So, so Don Carson, in his commentary on Matthew, gives a little helpful uh, couple of sentences here. He talks about salt in the ancient world. He says, strictly speaking, salt, it can't lose its saltiness. Sodium chloride is a stable compound, but most salt in the ancient world derived from salt marshes or the like rather than by the evaporation of salt water and therefore contained many impurities. The actual salt, being more soluble than the impurities, could be leached out, leaving residue to dilute it, and it was of little worth. And so this gives us a little bit of kind of historical context when Jesus talks about salt losing its saltiness. Right, the table salt that we have, I mean, I don't know how long you've had salt on your table, but it lasts a long time. Right? I, don't, I don't know if salt ever goes bad. We've had this giant thing of sea salt in our cabinet for a long time because it just doesn't get used that fast and it, it doesn't lose its taste. It doesn't lose its saltiness. It maintains. But this salt of the ancient world being derived from uh, something that had lot, lots of impurities in it and the salt being more soluble than the impurities, the, the quote-unquote salt could actually lose its saltiness. And so when Jesus here is making this proclamation that you Christian you are the salt of the earth. He's reminding you of your default state uh, as a kingdom person. But then he says, if the salt loses its taste, how shall the saltiness be restored? Right? Once the salt is diluted, it can't, it's not coming back. It's not coming back. And at that point, he says, it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And as I've been thinking about this for a couple of weeks, I've been thinking about the church and the church in the world and how salty the church may or may not be at this juncture in history. How can the church lose its saltiness? We don't want the church to lose its saltiness. We don't want Christians to lose their saltiness. But, but I think we live in a time in history, in a cultural moment, where, where the church has lost some saltiness. 
Are we, as Christians, known more in the world for what we're for or what we're against? Maybe right now we're known a lot more for what we're against. That's the church losing its saltiness. The world looks at evangelicals as a voting block. That's the church losing its saltiness. We've combined our politics and our religion, and in this cultural moment, being a conservative Republican Christian, like those are synonymous. That's the church losing its saltiness. And Jesus says that that when the church loses its saltiness, it's not good for anything anymore. I'm not here to, to rail against the church. I love, I love the church. I love the church, and I want to see the church be salty in the world, so don't hear me up here bagging on the church. But we have to be real about the state of the church in the world. The church is known for being angry about things. And I'm not saying that there aren't things that we ought to be angry about. And don't hear me saying that there's not times where we need to stand up against the culture and speak truth, right? That those, we certainly have to have those moments, but we do so with saltiness. Jesus in Mark chapter 9 verse 50 says it like this. He says, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another there's a correlation that Jesus makes in Mark's rendition of this, where being salty is connected with being at peace with one another. And the Bible tells us that as far as it is up to us to be at peace with everyone, right? It's not always 100% up to us to be at peace with everyone, but as far as it is up to us, be at peace with everyone. An influential pastor who's been influential to me over, over many years and an author, Tim Keller, maybe some of you know him, we, we tend to quote Keller a little bit around here. Uh, has been under attack lately because he purports that the gospel, the gospel isn't right or left, the gospel isn't red or blue, the gospel isn't conservative or progressive, the gospel doesn't fit into whatever categories that, that we have in our culture that divide people, but the gospel is above the fray and it's kind of a third way, if you will. And he gets ripped for this third way-ism. And Keller is one that, that I think understands humanity like few people understand humanity. Educated guy very much influenced by C.S. Lewis, um, sharp guy, and has made a career of planting churches in the secular city, right? Manhattan and, and other places. And he has an audience with secular people. And secular people pay attention to what he has to say because of his winsomeness. And I've been reading on social media in the last few weeks where other pastors who I respect and pay attention to uh, are coming against Keller saying that this time for third way is and this time for winsomeness, really at the end of the day, this time for saltiness is what they're coming against. They're saying it's over. It's time for the men in the church to rise up and to fight, right? It's kind of this don't tread on me bro type of attitude that's filtered its way into the church. And again, it's the church losing its saltiness. I, I tend to agree with Keller that you attract more flies, how does the saying go, with honey than with vinegar? And, and the gospel The gospel is true. The gospel has a truth that spans time and history. The gospel was true thousands of years ago, and the same gospel is true today, regardless of the cultural moment that we're in. I think the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4, uh, while he doesn't specifically mention this concept of salt or light, I think he unpacks for us maybe what this tends to look like. So throwing out some ways that maybe the church has lost its saltiness. Well, what does it look like for a church to not lose its saltiness? Ephesians 4, starting in verse 17, the Apostle Paul says this, Now I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. 
They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That is not the way that you learned Christ, assuming that you heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. The Apostle Paul paints this picture that the people that don't follow Christ, like they're lost. They're lost in their rejection of Christ, and we can all give a hearty amen to that, but he tells us that this is not the way that you learned, Christian, to walk in the ways of Christ. You once were like that. You once were lost in your ways too, but Christ has redeemed you. He goes on to say in light of that truth, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to everyone, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. This is a tall order, this last paragraph that I just read. This is a tall, tall, tall order. In light of what Christ has done for us, the Apostle Paul said, in light of the fact that, that we once too were sinners lost in our ways, rejecting Christ, and that he redeemed us, that he made us righteous, and that he made us holy as we've submitted our lives to him. In light of that truth, he says, love your neighbor, help your neighbor, be kind to your neighbor. If you used to steal, don't steal anymore. Do things in your life so that you can help people that are in need. Don't take anymore, but give, he says. He says, don't let any corrupting talk come out of your mouths. That's a hard one. We like our corrupting talk, don't we? So some, let's be honest, sometimes corrupting talk is fun, right? We, we enjoy corrupting. We feel good about ourselves when we can speak in a corrupting way about others. It's a terrible thing, but, but it's true. And he says, don't let any of that come out of your mouth, but only such is good for building up. This was something that years ago was a conviction to me, and I, and I fail at this, but I think about it on a pretty regular basis, even moment by moment during the day. I'll, I'll catch myself in the middle of corrupting talk, realizing, like, I shouldn't be saying what I'm saying, or yet worse, I shouldn't be thinking what I'm thinking. Like, I don't get points just because it's up here and not out here. I think things a lot. I'm pretty good about not saying a lot of what I think, but I think a lot of things that, like, you might be shocked to know what goes through my head at times, and, and the Apostle Paul says, no. That's not good. Build up with what you do as fits the occasion so that you may give grace to those that hear. Sometimes we just want to stick it to people, don't we? We want to speak our mind. We want to put them in our place. Think about when you're scrolling your social media feeds, what kind of headlines do you click on? Do you click on the headline that says, conservative commentator owns liberals? Do you click on those headlines? Corrupting talk. Those are the kinds of things that we enjoy, Right? Apostle Paul says, give grace to those who hear. And then he makes this connection, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Like God looks at that and says, uh-uh, that's, that isn't good. 
Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away. These are the things that we as a society, like those are the headlines that sell. Those are the headlines that get the clicks. The bitterness, the wrath, the anger, the clamor and slander. The Apostle Paul says, put those away. Be kind to one another. Sometimes it's difficult to be kind to one another, isn't it? But we're told this with no qualifiers. He doesn't say, be kind to one another for those that deserve kindness. It's just a blanket statement that says, be kind, be tenderhearted, be forgiving. The one qualifier is that, as God in Christ forgave you, be these things to other people because God has been these things to you. That's a salty Christian. That's how Christians maintain their saltiness, is by acting different than the world out there, acting different than society in a way that gives honor and glory to Christ. That's a salty church right there. First Peter chapter 3, Peter writes this, he says, Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ as Lord, as holy, as always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Paraphrase of what Peter is saying is, if you're a jerk, you deserve every bit of suffering that comes your way. If you're a jerk Christian that's out there uh, calling people names and making fun of people that don't believe the way, you, you deserve every bit of suffering that you get from that. You own that. But he says it's better to suffer for doing good. It's better to suffer for being a salty Christian if people don't like that. Your reward's in heaven. Your reward's coming. It's better to suffer for living the way that God has called Christians to live than it is for living in a way contrary to the way that God has called us to live. One, one is deserved and, and one isn't, and one comes with a reward later. And notice how he talks about here to be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the hope that is in you. He doesn't say be prepared on the off chance that somebody might ask you what your hope is. He says be prepared to make a defense when anyone asks you for a reason. In other words, it's kind of a foregone conclusion that, that if you live the way that we're called to live, somebody's going to stand up and take notice and say, what's the deal with you? Why do you live the way that you live? Why don't you do the things that other people do? It's kind of this byproduct of right Christian living. It's the byproduct of being salt in a world that desperately needs it. In Matthew 5, Jesus then goes on. He makes another proclamation. So you are the salt of the world. Then in verse 14, he says, you are the light of the world. Again, he doesn't say, go be the light of the world. He says that you are the light of the world. And he gives a couple examples. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the ancient world, cities often were made of, of this kind of stone that was white. And especially under the moon and the stars from a distance, the city would be a little bit naturally illuminated just because of the whiteness of the stone. And then if they had you know, candles lit or fires going, it would illuminate the city even further. And you just couldn't help but see it from a distance. And there was nothing that the city could do about it. They couldn't like darken themselves. It was just this natural illumination because of how they were built. A city on a hill can't be hidden. In the same way, it's silly that you would get up in the middle of the night in your house turn on a lamp so that you could see and then immediately cover it up. It just doesn't make sense, right? You turn on the lamp at night so that you can see. Oftentimes when I wake up in the middle of the night, I, I grab my cell phone to help light my way. We have these blackout curtains in our bedroom and so it's just dark. 
I'll grab my phone so I can see and so I don't you know, trip over the dog or stub my toe in the bed or something like that. Right? The whole point is that, that we light something up in order for that thing to be illuminated. And it would be silly to illuminate something and immediately cover it up. And then Jesus says, in the same way, in the same way that the city on the hill is illuminated without even trying, in the same way that you turn on a lamp so that it can create illumination, in the same way, Jesus says, let your light shine before others. You are like that city on a hill that that has this inherent illumination to it. He says, let your light shine before others so that others may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. As we live as salt and light in the world, there's a purpose to it. Again, Jesus saying, you are, he's not saying go be, but he's saying you are, you are the light of the world. It's your default position as a kingdom person, as a follower of Christ. And as you are the light of the world, as you are the salt of the world, the whole point is so that people would see your light and see your saltiness and that they would not look at you and say, man, you're awesome. But they would look at you and say, I need to know more about that God that that person serves because of your works. We tend to think about faith as a very private matter, right? What's the saying? Like, don't talk about faith in politics. If what Jesus is saying here is true, your faith is not a private matter. Your faith is not between you and God. Your faith is a public matter that's on display for all to see as a default position for you, Christian. We we don't often like to talk about our faith or put it on display. We like to keep it private because that doesn't rock the boat and it doesn't bring suffering if, if my faith remains private to me. But Jesus is telling us here that, that we have faith, we have this Christian walk, we have this Christian life, so that it would intentionally be a very public thing on display for all to see. Think about that. You are the light of the world. Don't hide, don't hide your light. And if we're doing this right, if, if, we're, if we're submitting our lives to Christ, if we're in submission to the authority of Scripture, something should happen. Something, and the thing that should happen, according to Jesus, is that people will see our works, they'll see the things that we do, they'll see the way that we engage in the world, and they'll look at that and say, maybe there's something to that person's faith. We see this in the early church in Acts chapter 2. Right? All these people came to faith, and, and they very quickly began helping one another and serving one another and meeting one another's needs. And at the end of Acts chapter 2, It tells us that that they had favor with God and with the people. Now, I don't think there's a prescription that says if we do things like this, that that all the time it's going to lead to having favor with people and we're never going to suffer. I don't don't think the Bible would teach that at all. But Acts chapter 2 was a special moment where the church was being salt and light right at its inception, and something cool happened where they had favor with God and they had favor with people. Now that narrative, as you read through the book of Acts, pretty quickly changed where the church kind of fell out of favor with people and suffering happened and and all of that, right? So again, this is not a prescription to say if you always do this, it'll always lead to that. But we see the church being light in the world. I had a a cool example this week of salt and light. On Thursday after our podcast, um, the three of us went into Bend. We went to one of our favorite places to hang out at McMenamin's outdoor fire pits and a very social place. And often when you go there, you know, get in conversations with strangers and uh, Brent and David and I were there and we met a couple of guys, uh, Simon and Keith, who were sitting at another table. And we ended up in this conversation with them uh, for hours talking to these guys. Um, One of them was a very devout Muslim, uh, educated, uh, articulate, a sharp guy, 
very engaging. The other one uh, seemed like he just was there kind of listening and taking it all in, right? And we had this hours-long conversation about faith. And in some ways, um, there's some similarities in, in the things that we would believe with this Muslim man. In other ways, there are things that are vastly different. And in this hours-long conversation, there, there was not one moment where it was a fight, not one moment where it was an argument, not one moment where it was debate, but it was just people having a conversation about things that we believe, about very different things that we believe. And by the end of the day, uh, our time ended uh, with exchanging phone numbers and hugs with, with these men. And I don't know where that's going to lead. You know, we talked about when they're, they're from out of town, and we talked about when they come back into town, maybe we get together again and continue the conversation. Um, a neat thing. And I walked away from that thinking, man, like this was salt and light in action. You know, I, I saw two of your pastors engaging these guys in a way that was salt and light. Jesus in John chapter 8 makes this claim of himself. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Kind of like this city on a hill that has this sort of intrinsic illumination to it because of the way that it's built. Jesus, he's the light. And as we have Jesus in us, we have this sort of intrinsic illumination about ourselves as well. But it doesn't come from us. It comes from he who is in us, the Christ that we follow. John, in the very beginning of his gospel, chapter 1, says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was the life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Light has this way of just piercing, even just a little bit of light can pierce through the blackest darkness. But here's the thing with the darkness. John 3, 19 to 21 says, this is the judgment that light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light but does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And so to make a gospel connection here, again, the proclamations are that you are the salt of the world, that you are the light of the world. I don't want to stand here today and, and just put a bunch of rocks in your backpack where you feel like you have to carry this heavy load out of here to try harder to be better because that's not the gospel. The gospel message says you are these things. Light and salt are your identity as Christians. They're part of who God has made you to be as he's removed the old and replaced it with the new because he is ultimately the light. And we live in a world where people love their darkness. And that seems to be more and more evident as time goes on. We just love the darkness more and more. We're drawn to the darkness more and more as a society. And at no point does Jesus ever say, be mad at the people that are drawn to the darkness. At no point does he ever say, be offended at the people that are drawn to the darkness. At no point does he say, go fight the people that are drawn to the darkness. At no point does he say, go own the people that are drawn to the darkness. He doesn't say that. Jesus came into the world to shine the light of the gospel to those that are in the darkness. He chased after those who were drawn to darkness in order to bring them to the light because he himself is the light. If your first reaction at people who don't think like you and who don't live like you is to be angry and offended, you're, you're missing the gospel. 
Then I'll stand and like it's hard not to be offended at some of the things that happen in the world. It's hard not to be angry at some of the things that happen in the world. And, and there are things, you know, we should be angry that somebody wouldn't shot up a school. That, that should stir anger in us all. But you know what? That school shooter, he's, he's not the villain. He's a victim of being drawn to the darkness. And, and he's a man that needs Jesus. And our hearts should break for people that need Jesus, not to be angry at them or offended by their actions. How does the church lose its saltiness? How does the church cover its light? with anger and with offense at those kinds of things. But when we've lost our ability to be heartbroken over sin, that's the church losing its saltiness and covering its light. And so my encouragement to us today is we are reminded of the truth of the gospel that says, such were some of you. Right? There was a day that I didn't follow Christ. There was a day that you didn't follow Christ. There was a day that, that all of us, we were blinded in our sin There was a day that we chased after the darkness. And by God's great love and His great mercy, by His graciousness, I don't chase after the dark today, and and hopefully you don't chase after the darkness today. But we have to remember the truth of the gospel so that we can go out into the world amidst a whole bunch of people who are chasing after the darkness, and we can go out without being mad at them, without being offended by them, without trying to own them, and that we can be salt, and that we can be light, that we can shine the light of the gospel in the dark places that so desperately need it. And so be encouraged today, even those of you that shared during sharing time about you know, opportunities that you have. You, you are the salt, and you are the light, and God has given that to you as your identity. And so follow Christ and shine your light, and don't lose your saltiness. Season your conversations so that it may preserve those that hear. It's fitting today with that in mind that we get to share communion together. As, as always, uh, we're reminded of the gospel Sunday in and, and Sunday out. We're, we're reminded of the truth that Christ has done for us, things that we could and would never do for ourselves. We're reminded that he has given us this identity of salt and light in the world. Did you ever think about why is it that when we come to faith as Christians, we don't just get zapped to heaven in an instant? We could, God could do that, right? He could just beam us up in the moment. Why doesn't he? because we're salt and light in the world, right? If the world didn't have Christians in it, who, who would be the salt and who would be the light? If our workplaces didn't have Christians there, who would be salt and light? If our schools didn't have Christians there, who would be salt and light? There's a reason for your existence on earth, and it's to continue to proclaim this message of the gospel, to shine the light and to do so in a way that draws people in, not that pushes them away. And so as we share communion today, remembering what Christ has done for us, remembering that he died for me, a sinner, He died for you as someone who was chasing the darkness. He came after you and pulled you out of the darkness and into his marvelous light, Peter tells us. But we celebrate that fact when we eat the cracker and we drink the the cup, remembering Christ's body broken and his blood shed for you and for me so that we could remain in this world as Christians, as salt and light. And so let's remember that as we pray. Father, we're thankful this morning. We're thankful uh, for the truth of your word. We're thankful that you uh, love us so much that you would come into the darkness and come after us. Thankful that you've saved us. Thankful that you're merciful to us. Thankful that you're gracious to us. And thankful that you have given us this identity as Christians, as salt and light in the world. And so I would pray for all of us here today that you would help us. Help us to be salt. Help us to be light. Help us to display the truth of the gospel as we live in the world. God, help us to live such lives that those that don't know you would take notice of something that's different about the rest of society 
and that you would give us opportunities to share about you. You'd give us opportunities uh, to put our faith on display in a very public sort of a way. And if that comes with some suffering, God, help us to endure whatever suffering that might bring. But more than that, God, we pray that uh, not only as individual Christians, but as a church, that you would help our light to shine brightly so that we would see more and more people come to know you as time goes on. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.